Hey, hey, what's up, everyone? Tom Work is here, and welcome back to another broadcast of In the Trenches, where we dive into the stories of people who've been through the thick of it, who are doing great work day in and day out, even when things get tough, and who can clue us in on how to handle some of life's most difficult circumstances. Today's episode couldn't come at a better time. But before we dive in, a quick shout out to five-star iTunes reviewer, RFG, who said this. There are a few podcasts that are as insightful as the In the Trenches podcast with Tom Morcus. Tom is an excellent listener, and his commentary with his guests provide the listener with a multitude of varying opinions and perspectives about the nuances of entrepreneurship. The format of the show is fantastic and fresh. Keep up the good work. Thanks, RF. You're number one. And that brings us to today. It's mid-March 2020. The world, quote-unquote, as many people view it, has been turned upside down. As of this recording, many people are forcibly sequestered in their homes. Brick-and-mortar small business owners have had to close their doors and maybe closing their businesses in a few more weeks, and thousands of people have been laid off. The initial reaction to circumstances like this is usually why, or to start searching for more information about the thing, about the, the circumstances, the events, what's happening. But I think that is a loser's game, sincerely. The why is not relevant in the midst of crisis. What matters is getting through. That means knowing where you are right now, where you came from, and where you're going. What is your aim? If you don't know the above, then you are lost. If you are lost, there's nothing you can be certain about. And uncertainty breeds fear, anxiety, depression, all those terrible things that end up costing people lives. That means your job right now, regardless of who you are, is to stay calm, stay focused on the prize, and work your way out of this mess. And you do that by following very simple personal practices, and we'll get to some of those today. And by doing that, here's the other benefit. You end up being the person who shows other people the certain path forward. Remember, all times of chaos are times of opportunity. And that's why I'm so excited for today's call. Today, I sit down with Samir Patel, founder of Trophy Point Investment Group. Samir is a West Point grad and classmate of mine. We both graduated in 2008 and served five years active duty as commission officers. Similar to my story, after company command, Samir resigned his commission and moved into entrepreneurial pursuits full-time. And in that time, he's dealt with it all, basically. He's lost a million on adventure, basically losing it all. He's turned around bad companies from the brink of bankruptcy. And he's just an absolute fighter who grinds it out and, and is a helpful, genuinely helpful human being for other people, creates value where value did not exist before. And he's able to deal with really difficult circumstances. And he's been in brick and mortar businesses. We're talking hotels, um, distribution, like trucking companies. And most recently with what he's doing, helping people figure out how to kind of survive financial challenges, specifically with loans and debt and things like that, and what you can do to kind of secure yourself. And this is especially relevant in today's times for those reasons. So today's call is focused on two things primarily. Given current circumstances, how do you mitigate downside risk by spotting financial liabilities and then closing them up? And then more broadly, just how to handle chaos, because of course, that's the times we're in. And I'd say it's a really great episode. And that's why I wanted to get it out ASAP because I think it's needed. My only ask of you is that if you found this useful, please share it with others. Certainly anyone who's scared or fearful right now, I believe that hearing me, hearing Samir, you'll know that you, know, you can go through tough times and things can turn out for the better. Uh, but also anyone that you know who's a business owner, entrepreneur, artist, writer, or creator or who's struggling because of recent events, share with them too. This could be just the thing that they need that helps them get through these tumultuous times. So thank you in advance for sharing. Now, without further ado, let's get to the interview. So Samir, I know today we're going to be talking about how you kind of turn companies around. I want that kind of to be the focal point and 
what good timing, all things considered, or unfortunate timing. I don't know, however you want to put that. But we'll, we'll get into that. But before we do, I want a little backstory. Obviously, as a West Pointer, we have to give you a lot of respect. You know, so we, that's, the, that's the starting point here. But, but even before that, maybe give us a little bit of your background, where you began, how you got to what you're doing today, and then we'll just break it down from there. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've, I'm from Atlanta, and I've been an entrepreneur, I think, my entire life. Like When I was 10, I was working the cash register at my dad's Haagen-Dazs ice cream store. Uh, in high school, I was the guy selling like, you know, burn CDs or, you know, even, you know, whatever you could sell in high school, I was probably peddling it one form or another. Um, and then ironically, it led me to West Point. I felt like West, a lot of people think West Point military is very limiting um, in terms of options. And like, you're in this very like structured environment and it doesn't speak to entrepreneurship. But I actually felt somehow differently about the academy that it would be more of an empowering experience and I would learn the tools to to capture all this energy that I've had, which is like largely untamed, I guess. And I and I precisely did that at the academy. And I even like, you know, bought a business while I was at the academy, a hotel junior year. And and I've just been successively just building upon that and finding a need and just finding a solution for it. So so this so it's safe to say like side hustling as a one way to put it, it's something you've been doing like your entire life, kind of taking the entrepreneurial Yeah, part. I think I've always had two jobs or three jobs yeah. at any given time. Yeah, I'm the same way. It's funny too, like when you say West Point, like I kind of I kind of felt the same way. I definitely want to enter, enter the military, like that was where my mindset was. But I also saw it as the opportunity to say like, well, at a, at a minimum, it'll, it should provide, you know, it, well, it's training, right? It's like, you know, grinding it out of you. It's going to turn you into something, hopefully better. And maybe you take that leadership on and, it's one of those things I didn't appreciate at the academy, obviously at the time, but like since and having graduated, been through the military, gotten out, now doing the stuff I do now in the business setting, I realize like things don't phase me. Do you have that experience at all? <laughs> yeah, not at all. I mean, I, very little phases me. I think I've at this point, like I've been nearly annihilated twice due to business failures or market conditions, um, Iraq, Afghanistan, all that stuff. Like. I, I just, I'm smiling 99% of the time and I, I yeah. just can't help but laugh when things just go to shit. Right. I, I, I feel the same way a little bit. It's like, yeah, it's kind of like, a, it's a comfort zone almost. Not that I need it, but it's like when there's chaos, it doesn't, it doesn't really throw me off. It doesn't distract me. I wonder if there's something to that or, or the military. But I, I think that that probably does tie into it. But let me, let me ask you this. So you, you bought the hotel at West Point. So you're already doing like significant like investments and business while in school. Then you, um, graduated, you were, uh, and you were in for five years, right? So you were... Yeah, five years active duty. Yeah. So 2007, I bought the hotel. 08, I graduated with you actually. And then five years active duty after that. Yep. So, so in terms of that timeline, while you were active duty, um, was it pretty like low key on what you were doing on the side or are you pretty, like how aggressive were you? Like in terms of like still being a platoon leader or, or, you know, or, or whatever you were on, on up the ranks, you know, um, to still then manage some sort of business on the side. Cause like I kind of started my side hustle, but it was much later in the career. It was like when I was a captain, I think is when I started, I was like, and I was kind of like a year or two out. I was like, okay, now I really want to focus on this stuff. Um, so tell me a little bit of how you manage some of this stuff. And what was that first foray out once you left the military? What do you dive into? Yeah. So while I was in the military, I mean, I literally was working two jobs. Um, and, but I didn't really think about it as a job because in that, in those times I was reading a ton. Yeah. And like to give you an example, like I was stationed on a combat outpost in Diyala, Iraq. No internet. We go out there for seven days. No internet. No hot water or anything like that. 
it's just me and my laptop and my rifle and my guys, right? Pretty much, right? And most guys would, you know, most of my platoon would in their free time. And, you know, the, the nature about war and combat is that it's boring. I mean, a lot of sense. Like, you've got three, four weeks of nothing happening. And then, like, one to two weeks where everything is just, like, incredibly busy and, like, the whole world goes to hell. And then it goes back to, like, this period of calmness and then it goes in the cycle. It's not just, like, getting shot at every single day. That wasn't my experience, at least. And um, so I, you know, what I did was I printed out Warren Buffett's shareholder letters going all the way back to 1978. And I just read those things in my off time while I was deployed. And so in my off time, I was doing a lot of reading and stuff like that. And then when I came back to the States, and so just to be clear, I wasn't running any sort of business while I was deployed. It's just impossible. And I didn't want to do that. I had to focus on, you know, combat operations. Right. Exactly. Um, but when I came back, you know, I was on the phone thanks to the time difference as well, because I was in Seattle and most of my operations were in Atlanta and Chicago. Um, um, like I was just on the phone and like, I remember raising capital for one deal that I was doing and I spent probably 12 hours on the phone that weekend, just calling up everybody I know saying, Hey, this is the deal we got. This is how much we're looking, we're trying to raise. These are the risks, these are the rewards. And I never thought about it as work. I just, I just felt like West Point built me to be a manager of resources, of people and resources and time. And that was just a natural extension of what I was doing with, with the side hustles and, and the lending business that I started also in conjunction with the hotel. Well, it's, it's a, it's a good compliment to that. Like, cause you already had the entrepreneurial spirit. I think I probably did too, a little bit like kind of the more creative bent or like, how do you, how do you create value out of nothing or whatever it was that fascinated you about business? We'll say like, I kind of had the same, same thoughts and feelings. And yeah, the managerial aspect helps like reel that in. Cause who knows where that like creativity would have gone for me personally. I have no idea. But like, yeah, when, what you're saying to me, I'm just like nodding my head right now because everybody's going to be listening to this. But like, I completely agree. It's very, very similar to my, my path too. So then when you got toward the end, did you ever think about making the military career? Or were you like, nope, this is, this is, the, this is what I want to do now. I want to go into a kind of business full-time. Yeah, the first three years of the military, I felt really strongly about keeping it or making it a career of some sort. Um, because we, you know, as lieutenants, especially during that time period, we were given so much autonomy. Like, for example, in my combat outpost, I had 25 of my scouts plus 50 Iraqis and Kurds that I was also doing operations with. So like as this 23 year old, 24 year old guy, I mean, I had responsibility for at least 75 people in one capacity or another and super empowering. I had people that, you know, it felt great to be looked up to and it felt great to make your own plans, execute those plans and then get feedback on those plans. Like it's like running a mini business in one sense over and over again. And that's hugely empowering. Um, but as you know, this, that as you progress up the ranks, it's not that way. It just becomes more and more administrative, right? Yeah. I became a company commander, did really well, was ranked number one in my brigade of 20 captains, 23 captains or whatever. Got moved up to be chief of operations, like the number three guy in this thousand person organization and had a great boss and a great team I worked with, but PowerPoint was largely going to be my life. Um, and fielding phone calls at 8 p.m. about, hey, this we need a report on such and such, which in the grand scheme of things wasn't, I didn't feel was meaningful or impactful given the education experiences that I've that we have cumulatively experienced so far. Yeah. So I, I decided, you know, it was time to go. Yeah. 
Well, it's funny that that PowerPoint, I was like, it became one of my, 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 uh, my superpowers getting out because I was doing my own self-publishing at the time. I became uh-huh. such a whiz on PowerPoint. I did everything on PowerPoint. It's like, it's, it's almost unbelievable to look back on it, but it worked. It's like, there's the skill that I took, took away from the army. <laughs> and I'm grateful for it, actually. Like I, as a chief of operations, I spent like a year and a half doing PowerPoint and I use it, especially with my, my virtual outsource staff. Like being able to teach people that you don't see face to face and communicate an idea across a medium like PowerPoint mm. is immensely invalu- invaluable. Like if you're running a business or you've got an operation that's that's very systematic. Yep, exactly. So let's dive, let's dive into some of the business stuff here, because um, I know you've you've been you, you kind of even mentioned it I think earlier, which was that you know you had been close to the brink of it all ending or whatever in, in a business sense, bankruptcy or whatever that might be. What I, I don't know, maybe you could explain, but. Um, or, or, you know, however much stuff you wanted to go into, but, but take us into that a little bit. I want to know, cause you've done that a couple of times, I think, but what it's like, and maybe we can tie this into a broader topic, but maybe give us one example of like the uh, business that you went into and turned around. I believe it was the trucking one, but I know you've done this a couple of times, so we can kind of start wherever you'd like. Yeah. I mean, the hotel in 2007, when I bought it, when I bought it, it was fine, but then 08, 09 happened and mm-hmm. then it was not fine. And yeah. that was... A tremendous like the first lesson is like understanding and developing a thick skin because one of the first actions I had to take was laying off employees. And and right after we graduated, actually, you know, I would spend my military leave back at the hotel looking at stuff, looking at the books, auditing the operations, all that sort of thing. And I remember, you know, with this front desk guy, he was like 75, 80 years old. And, you know, we were providing a job and he was earning income. And I think he wasn't getting as much from social security as he wanted to or whatever. Great guy, super nice, but he's not fit for a front desk job, especially like, you know, front desk people need to be lively. They need to be like attentive to concerns and customer complaints and all that. He wasn't that way. And I think I felt so bad on the inside, like firing this guy or letting him go and having that conversation with him face to face. Um, I was actually more nervous than I think he was when I first sat him down and, but I'm glad I did it. Right. Because it was necessary for the business survival, right? Like we were just losing money, especially in, you know, that time period when like, you know, everyone's breaking even or getting foreclosed on in real estate. And, you know, that was my first lesson is just to to develop thick skin and just be honest. And I said, I said to the guy, Hey, this is what's going on. I can't afford you. I have to let you go. If there's any way I can help you, please let me know. And, and within three minutes, he was the first person I fired uh, at 24 or 22. And unfortunately, a big part of my business turning around businesses is that sometimes you just got to let people go. And I've been party to, to letting a lot of people go. And um, I'm not proud of it, but it's, it's a skill that every business owner needs to have is to look yeah. at a situation yeah, dispassionately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't get that experience in the army. Exactly. You don't really get to let people go. You know, <laughs> it's a different no, thing. The army, you know, the army does this hand magic hand wave thing. Like, okay, well, you're just gonna go over there, right? Like, I can't like truly fire anybody. You know, they don't get that. They don't get the benefit of that feedback of screwing up. No, no, no. That's a good point. But yeah, no, I went through that process myself. Have been there, done that. Um, with the hiring and having to let go employees, it's not fun. Um, let me, let's, let's dig into how you, how, beyond, so is personnel. Obviously, that's one of the things that you have to turn around. 
what else did you look at? Like, what were the weak weak links besides, say, personnel or employees or like you know, or the the people say in these in these institutions that at, once they got to the point they they got it, like not necessarily that they drove it because that was just kind of the economy at the time with hotels, for instance. But what else were you looking for? What were the other factors that were like critical when you were say doing your audit or trying to figure out how do I make this yeah uh, profitable again? So there's a saying that you can't cut your way to success, right? Like you can only make so many cuts. You know, cutting doesn't grow revenue necessarily. So the next thing you do that I've always found helpful is to segment my revenue sources. So let's say, you know, I'm a company and I'm just speaking broadly here, but in trucking and hotels, this is done every day, actually. You know, you take $100 of revenue and you cut it into pieces based on buckets. Like customers are coming from this bucket, customers are coming from this bucket and that bucket, and they're all different for whatever reason. And then you like, and I looked at like, for every dollar I earn in that bucket, how much do I get to keep? And every dollar I earn in the other bucket, how much do I get to keep of that? And you kind of do this analysis, like, of where, like, where's the juice really coming from? You know, kind of like the the Pareto principle, where you know, twenty percent of your fact, twenty percent of your stuff accounts for eighty percent of your results. And I would just do that, and and that provides enormous clarity and understanding, like where we want to focus our time and energy. Because there's only so much time and energy we have in a day or in a week or a month or what have you. And you know, obviously, I mean, we would like to put our energy into higher payoff things. And so segmenting is probably, you know, it's business MBA stuff 101, but it's so crucial in any business. Well, the way you described it, maybe it's more kind of directed towards uh, brick and mortar. Um, give me an example of like what would be like the two types of buckets, um, maybe like, and could it be hypothetical, maybe in real life, what they were like, or one or the two that you saw and you're like, this is where we're making money. And we were not really making money. Like every dollar there wasn't really making us a dollar, but over here it was. Um, if you can give me an example to dive into, cause I'm, what yeah. I'm trying to think about is how my people might be able to apply this or think about kind of dissecting their own business. Yeah. So, you know, in trucking, for example, right. Most trucking is either paid by the load or paid by the mile. Right. And then you've got customers that pay either or. And then you've got, you know, you every every business probably faces this where you've got high ticket items that don't necessarily translate into higher profit margin. And you have your reasons for doing it, and, and God bless you. And then you have lower ticket items that, you know, lower dollar amount, but then they produce enormous amount of margin for whatever reason. Or it could be vice versa. It, it, every business is different. Um, so in trucking, for example, like we used to go for the higher dollar loads. And what that ended up meaning though, as we peeled back the onion was that it would require our drivers to drive longer than what they should have been doing. Right. So $2,000 load, right. From Atlanta to let's say Indianapolis sounds great. But when you peel back the onion, it comes back down to like $1.50 a mile. Whereas I can send my driver from Atlanta to Tennessee two times and he's earning $1.75 per mile. Ah, uh, yeah, I see. Right? Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. so, and, and you know, on top of that, like he's in, the, my driver's located in the South where if something went wrong, we can react to him a lot quicker. Whereas if he's in like Indiana or Chicago, he's all the way out there. It's going to cost a whole lot more to help him if something goes wrong. And so, those are like those are two simple buckets that I had to like really look at when I owned this trucking business. Let me ask you this then: like when you looked at that, was that then once you did the math and you saw it, was it like, hey, we just need to stop doing those, say, uh, 
high ticket or not necessarily high ticket, but like the um the, the term you used, I'm, I'm blanking on it, the like the lump sum payment or the or the fixed cost. Yeah, per load. Per load versus okay. So do you say, hey, we're just mixing all per load and we're only going on the per mile kind of thing? Or is it more like, no, when we when we're bidding on something like this, we're gonna over we're gonna bid higher on these 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 loads. Yeah, exactly. It's a combination of both, right? In some and you have to look at some of the I guess political factors or marketing factors involved with that, right? Because in trucking, if you do a good load in trucking, it's so hard to find reliable trucking companies. So if you do a good load for somebody and you do it consistently, they're going to give you more loads. Like we did business with Amazon and we started off with like one or two loads. And then after four months, we were doing almost 18 loads a day for Amazon, right? Because we were just a trusted carrier. We became a trusted carrier. And so sometimes you got to eat it a little bit. Um, and and just eat, you just got to eat it in hopes that there's more business or maybe put a deadline for yourself saying, hey, look, if we haven't grown this account in six months, then we need to rethink this. Um, and if it's an existing customer that's been a great customer, you know, you don't want to like just like automatically say, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. It doesn't, that's not good business. So you just have to, this is the art of it. You just have to like manage that, find that balance and slowly shift toward the, the end state that you want. But you don't know that end state until you do this analysis. Mm-hmm. With somebody, with working with somebody like Amazon, I'm curious, especially you know, since everybody knows it, and the, I think everybody's privy and aware of like, you know, the market dominance and how there's like it's just ever present. Like you see Amazon boxes everywhere, so you know they're a big. Doesn't even matter on the technical side or statistical side, like how big it is. We just know it's a real. It's an operation that affects everybody. So like getting their business seems like a big deal. Um, what was it like like to try to land that? Was that important to you guys? Like, and then you end, eventually sold the business, right? So was that all kind of on the glide path there? Like, was that all useful getting you there, or was it? Because this is what I'm kind of curious. I know this is kind of more in the trucking and distribution space, but I'm, I'm also my question is kind of broadly more like some like I wonder if it's always good to work with the big big companies or if they're the ones who end up being like kind of the the ones that shortchange you the most. Um, because they're so so profit seeking, you know, you want it so bad because you know if I can build into it, then it'll be worthwhile. I'm just curious, as deep as you want to go with that. Yeah, you're so you're so so right. And as Admiral Akbar said in Star Wars, it's a trap. I mean, it is working with a behemoth like Amazon turned out to yeah. be a trap. And, you know, I'm not going to bash Amazon. They've got yeah, yeah, they've got their priorities, but the experience I've had and some other trucking companies have had is that working with Amazon is not not necessarily in your best interest. And it's good while the times last, but Amazon um, and also another company similar to Amazon, you know, they can cut off, cut you off so fast. Right. And that hurts immensely with planning. And the lesson I learned was not to be too concentrated with a company like that because we're 65 trucks at the time, mm. 60, 65 trucks. Um, at any given time, maybe 55 would be operational, like rubber on the road. And if you're doing 20 loads or 45% of your capacity with just one customer on a daily basis, and then next week they say, hey, we're shifting our model a little bit. We need to cut our loads to eight from 19 to eight. That's a huge burden on the business. And you know they're huge and they can do it, right? Because they're going to be like, well, if you're not going to play ball, then we'll just go somewhere else. Yep. And they can do that in a heartbeat. So... It's, it's uh, I mean, this is what I love about business, though, but part of it too, because it's like it's always this give and take. Because it's like you see it, it's like, it, but it's also consistent lessons. Like when I hear that, I'm like, yep. And, you know, learned that probably the hard way myself, too. I'm more of a kind of like an agency model. 
and having like kind of agency like heavily money coming in heavily say from like one or two clients um but i've always kind of been diversified i just kind of took that anti-fragile approach you know um just to say like how do we produce like multiple streams of revenue and just have lots of not so much redundancy less redundancy more just like lots of different things like are you familiar yeah, I, hear you. I mean we started a subsidiary business for precisely that reason but it's 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 a tough yeah. tough balance right because when you've got one customer offering you almost 30 to 40 thousand dollars a day in revenue right mm-hmm. i get it we can talk all day about balance and being anti-fragile but at the same time like man are you going to turn down forty thousand dollars of revenue no, you figure you figure out a way to do it. Yeah, exactly. Because it's it's there. You just do it, and then you figure out the way through yeah. it. I, I agree completely. It's one of those things where it's like, you know, again, even you hear could hear this. You could be studying this. You could know it, and the the thing, the deal can still be in your face, and you still take it. And that's not the wrong thing to do. I don't I, I don't mean it that way. Just like, um, or anything like that. But like that, yeah. It's like it's a lot of it's like it's like a perpetual state of discernment in in business and entrepreneurship, right? I felt like I was on this horse, like I was this cowboy on this horse or bull, trying to like just hang yeah. on to this bull. Yeah. You know, every second that I stood on longer was like, you know, I was that much closer to winning. <laughs> That's right. And then you, okay, so you ended up selling that and then you've moved on and you're starting another company. It's kind of similar, uh, not trucking, but but similar in terms of, well, I don't want to make, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So to walk me through this, so you you sold sold the business and you moved on. You're now doing working with uh doing some like loan money lending type stuff but I'll just I'll pause there but give me give me an example of that transition and what you're working on right now yes I sold the business um and I decided I'm gonna take you know a year off basically because I felt like I earned it and I lost all my hair um did that years ago man it's good to I'm just kidding I'm more aerodynamic now <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but uh I, I started school at night at Georgia State University getting my master's in commercial real estate um and one of the things I do on the side, actually, personally, is I teach. And I think teaching is an excellent side hustle. So I teach entrepreneurship at Georgia State University here in Atlanta. And I want to continue to teach. But they're like, hey, you don't have a higher degree. You need to get a degree before we you know, give you more work to teach. So I thought, perfect time. Get my master's in real estate, which I, I've always been in real estate. Um, and then with this crisis going on right now, you know, it dawned on me. I've been doing a lot of searching since I've been holed up in my house, as you have been probably for the last week. That the core of who I am and the core of what I do is just turning around bad situations. And for many businesses, especially higher dollar businesses, higher revenue businesses, there's always a lending or a debt component to it. With the hotel, there's a 1.3 million dollar loan that we had, right? That I had to cut to 600 thousand dollars through a workout. Um, with trucking, you know. $9 million revenue business, but we were using factoring and we had some other loans that we had to work out. With every real estate that I buy, there's a debt component to it. Um, residential or commercial for that matter. So it just dawned on me that people don't necessarily... People, it's so easy to get a loan, especially over the last five, six years. Um, people don't necessarily know what they're getting into. And leverage, you know, just broadly speaking, can help you can help you two times, it can hurt you two times. Um, but the problem with leverage is that a lot of people personally guarantee their debt on top of that. So a 10% drop in revenue could wipe out 50% of profits and then also prevent you potentially from not even making loan payments or anything like that if it keeps getting worse. So 
all the stuff going on, I'm like, my time, my vacation time is over. It's time now to get back to business. And I'm just taking the cumulative experience of all I've done. And now I'm helping people uh, work out their, their loan situations. And right now, not many people, you know, as we do this interview, right, not many people are defaulting on loans. Um, in this month, their cash flow may be wiped out. In a month or two months from now, that's when the pain they may not hits. be able to make loan payments. Yep. What's that? That's when the pain hits. That's when the pain hits. And so right now what I'm doing is I'm like just telling people what their options are. You just got to you got to get out there as broadly as possible and plan as many seeds as possible because in about in about 1 to 2 months is when people will become That's exactly it, right? Yeah. Yep. And I'm you know right now I'm, I'm helping people, you know, understand their options because mm. banks work in a different way. They don't work as I wouldn't say illogically, but they don't think about things the way you and I think about it. Exactly. They, I was just saying they, they don't work like human beings. So like, you know, that's the thing. If you put a human component in or help people out. So in this regard, like with the, with the, with the debt, that also seems like getting into that, that sphere where I'm like, it's really intimidating, you know, banking money, right? It's designed to be intimidating. It's designed to, to make you feel like there's nothing you can do but pay you that back. So you come in, you can what? Consolidate, work the debt down. You mentioned something about having a million dollar loan or loan that you worked down to 600,000. To me, that's, I'm like, how did you do that? Like, I don't need to know maybe all the, you don't have to give all your secrets away, but I'm curious, how do you even start with a process like that to even engage in something like that? Yeah. And you know, the first process, the first stage of that, all that is communication. And I remember calling the bank and I'm like, I was super nervous. Like I, you know, I'm just the guy that'll go ask the question at least, right? I'm willing to ask questions, even though the, you know, the world may collapse upon me. I remember calling the bank and I'm like super nervous. I'm stuttering. I'm 24 talking to this banker who's been in the business probably for 20 years, whatever. And I'm just like, uh, Hey, what are my, what, 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 I'm like stuttering. It was a terrible conversation, but I'm stuttering the whole way. I'm scared, nervous. But then he gave me some small tidbit. And then I took that and then I called him next week and then he gave me another tidbit. And then I called him the week after that and they gave me another tidbit. And I just progressively learned how they think about these things. And it, but it all starts back for everyone. It all starts back for communication. Just call them. Don't lie. You know, don't misrepresent the situation. Just say, Hey, look, this is what's going on. And this is what could happen in the future. And I'd like to at least understand, you know, how you think about my loan. And you may be surprised at what they answer with. It's not all simply, you know, you need to make your loan payments on time or else. It's it's actually not that way. I, I, as any business owner probably knows this, everything is negotiable and everything has a price. And especially in times of market panic and, you know, systemic failure, which is what's going on right now, you know, you have options available. And I've just made friends with so many bankers over the years with all the loans that we've done. And I also own a hard money lending company and we lend money to folks that could not get a bank loan. And so we understand, you know, what led them to that to get to us. So, um, you know, I would just start with communication. And so that's what we're doing. We're literally helping people. One first step is look at their loan agreement. Every loan is different. No two loans are the same. Look at their business situation. We will even help them model their cash flow. And, you know, throw in a scenario, like, let's say 50% of your revenue cuts gets cut in half. What's that going to do? Um, which is true. I mean, as we talk right now, many businesses have 50 to 75% cut in cash flow or revenue. Yeah. 
Jeez. And we take those two things into, we look at their personal situation, look at their loan documents, and then we say, hey, look, here's a menu of potential options that we see that we can go forward or that we could potentially go forward with the bank. And we tuck that away, right? And then let's say 30 days from now or six days from now, the worst case actually happens where they can't, you know, service their debt. And then we'll come back in and say, hey, look, re-engage us again and we'll help you and even negotiate on your behalf with the bank to get you the best possible outcome. So it's a two-tier process. So, okay. So, and can anybody, like, would you work with anybody? Or do you work, or you work with, uh, specifically with business owners and specifically brick and mortar or just to be clear on that? We'll work with anybody. Like, well, at this stage we're I'm about helping people first and foremost. So I will never, at this market right now, like I will never turn anybody away. And yeah, smart. Um, because I just want to help people naturally. Um, so right now we're not turning anyone away. We'll, we'll talk to anybody. Um, and I'm still learning too, like certain things that are going on, like with some of the way these loans are written, especially in the most recent past, I guess, within the last year, I'm, I'm even learning some things about new covenants and loans that I didn't think were, were there before. So I'll talk to anybody. Um, and then when we engage them on their behalf, it's probably going to be more on the business side, whether it's a real estate loan or a, um, or like a working capital loan or something like that. Um, and then I have a friend that I refer, a trusted friend that I refer like home loans to if, if it comes to that. And he'll work out the home loans. And, and so in, in, in this context too, just so I understand, like say the business model capacity of this would be this, would this be similar to say like, oh, like, um, like, so I'll give you an example. I don't know if I've ever brought anybody on the podcast to talk about this. Maybe I should in the future. Um, but like, there's just like this one company I talked to and kind of was giving them do some basic kind of consulting on like uh, the affiliate side of things, influencer side of things. And they did uh, their business model though was like, we'll go and reach back out and reconnect with people who've churned, who've dropped the membership, dropped the subscription and get them to re-up. And then they capture a piece of that or, 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 or the payment plans that was stopped halfway through. We're, we'll go and we'll get it and then we get a piece of it. And so it was like capturing a piece of that. So it's like, when you think about it, it's like from a business perspective, it's like, well, if I would have lost that money completely, I'm going to give a piece of it over here. That's okay. So are you guys kind of looking at it from that model? Like, hey, if it's a million bucks, we can drop that to half a million. We can capture somewhere in between there. And at the end of the day, the person's still way better off. And every you win, the client wins. Is that kind of how you structure this? Yeah, so there are models. Um, and we're kind of like... So the in the past, we did do that. We would help take a percentage of, of the savings. Um, or we can... Because we have attorneys... Because this is somewhat of a legal type business. And so we have attorneys involved Got it. and then we bill per hour on top of that. Got it. Okay. So there's, there's some complexities here. And like when you start talking about loans and how they're all different, I'm like, yeah, it's, it sounds kind of miserable to get in. So it's good. You're going, it's like with the, it's like the Knights Templar. When you have to go find the Holy Grail, where do you go? You go to the darkest part of the forest and that's where you enter. So you, you, you found loans and that's where you're going. So like, so now let's just break this out a little more broadly here. So people are going through some crazy times while we record this, this is mid March, 2020. Um, so most people are like, uh, in their home, no change for me in my life, by, by the way, this is literally zero change in my life. I know that I don't mean that to say like, I'm not bragging or anything. I just, I've set up my life in such a way that all this stuff is happening around me. I hear these stories. I'm like, I was just garden. I was like planning yesterday, planning food and like, 
hanging outside with my kids. You know, it's like life's good. But a lot of people are going through tremendous chaos right now. Being businesses are forced to close. A lot of them are restaurants, gyms were like gyms and restaurants were like the first two. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, man, they're done. Like a, a almost a, can any restaurant survive being closed for two months? In certain spaces, like in Aspen, they'll have an off season. So right now, maybe some of those will survive over the next month or two because it's like shoulder season. But in cities where it's like you need the cash flow every month, the rent's not going to stop. So there's this all this chaos. And I know you said kind of like one of your things that you kind of like we'll say a d- skill you developed, the talent you've developed was like turning things around. When you look at something like this, what do you what do you say to yourself as an entrepreneur? What do you, what do you look at? What are you looking for? And what are you what are you not paying attention to? Or what are you excluding? Or what are you ignoring purposefully? Maybe if that makes sense. We'll get into that one in a second. Maybe let's start with what you look for in terms of tie, say chaos, uncertainty, when things are upside down. What do you do to try to say find your way out? Yeah, I mean, this is I don't want to overstate this or or sound like I'm like a you know carpetbagger, but on the face of the situation, there is major disruption in a market, in the economy. And entrepreneurs by DNA are folks that find a need and go ahead and fill that need. And so for me, who's largely been in the fire for my entire life, you know, literally, you know, in Iraq, Afghanistan, and then, you know, with this in business, like I've been in the fire my entire life, adult life. And I know what it's like to be on the other side of it. Like I once did a 500, I once took a $500,000 loan um, to go like, to be really, to take one, to give you one quick idea. I, I once took a $500,000 real estate loan and the real estate went bad and I, I leveraged my savings as well. I had $200,000 in savings at the time and I leveraged it to a million dollars in stock trading. And I lost it all uh, trading futures. Um, so I know what it feels like when you see like there's no money in the bank account and you also owe money to other people. I know what that viscerally feels like. And I, and I personally don't want people to feel like that ever again or say we, we can help. It. Um, that's my mission, I guess. And so in this, in this environment, it just seems like a perfect situation uh, quote unquote perfect to match up what my experiences and who I am with, you know, helping people that have a need. And and so given the context right now too, what would be something that probably this applies mostly to brick and mortar businesses or those like, cause again, I don't, I don't see my business as being generally like, I think it could be down the road, like through secondary and third order consequences, but I'm, I'm entirely digital. All my money's been digital the last five or six years, really. I mean, it's crazy. I was actually thinking about getting into a brick and mortar businesses last year because I was like, I want to get my hands dirty with something. Kind of really glad I did not. But <laughs> the point is that this, so if I'm a brick and mortar business owner, I just had to close my doors. What should I be thinking about? What should I be doing? Yeah, the first part is like, the first thing we tell clients is like, show me your personal financial statement. Can you send it to me within the next hour? And the reason why I say send it to me within the next hour is I want to see how prepared they actually are, right? Because a good business owner, just like any digital company for that matter, probably should have a dashboard of, of their key metrics that they can look at down to the second if they wanted to, right? And just like any business owner, you should have your, your financial situation on a dashboard of some sort, which you can, you can activate or look at any second of the day. That's my opinion. Maybe or at least every week, right? Because some businesses are heavy, we have weird revenue streams. But 
I ask them that to gauge how, what type of client is this going to be? Like, is this a person that's like really prepared and on it? And that tells me something, or is this a person that like hasn't even looked at their own personal financial statement or balance sheet in the last six months? And that tells me something else. Um, so at first is, you know, tangibly, you need to take stock of what you got and what you have and then what your obligations are. And then I would further segment, you know, your obligations into business obligations, personal obligations, and then maybe other obligations from a financial standpoint, at least. And maybe even life, you know, you should probably do this exercise in life probably every, every quarter or year at least. Um, and then from there we go, let's prioritize this, right? right? So in my situation, in our, for the clients we work with, probably the number one factor that we look at first is did the person personally guarantee this debt? Um, we also work with real estate leases because real estate leases are a form of debt actually, because it's almost like a loan if you think about it. And I happen to have a strong background in leases too. And some leases like loans have personal guarantee clauses, right? And so we start with there first, right? If it's personally guaranteed, the stakes are probably a little bit higher, right? Because personal guarantee means just that. And if things were to hit the fan in business, you're not shielded necessarily from the business alone. That personal guarantee will kick in and it could totally wipe out your entire financial situation, just like it did for many people in 2008 and 2009. So that's where we start. And then we just trickle down, down through that toward the priorities and helping the client figure out what's a priority to them. In some cases with real estate, they may be okay with giving back the keys to the bank if the situation and conditions are correct to do so. And we can advise on that, but we really go through the client's priorities. I don't, it's very wrong of me to just come in and say, hey, this is immediately what you should do. Because if it doesn't align with the priorities that you have for yourself, your family, your business, and your employees and all that, then my advice is largely irrelevant. I need to give you advice tailored to your priorities. Um, so that's that's the starting point, at least. Is, and there, is there, this, this would not cover anything like, because uh, I know we're primarily talking about businesses, and I know there's, there's some uh, application outside of that, but... Is there there right for, for what you do? There's no there's no way to apply this to like home loans, right? Those are like its own kind of beast. Are like yeah, it is fundamentally different. Yeah. Um, in some ways, and you know the the key thing is ninety nine percent of home loans, at least your first primary mortgaged home, uh, carries a personal guarantee, right? And you know, but that can be worked out too. Um, when there's systematic shocks like there is right now the banks fully understand that they could literally face 20, 30% of their portfolio in default. So they're going to institute a, it's going to hurt you and help you at the same time. It's going to help you that the bank is going to, the bank understands what's going on. They know it's not just you and they're not going to try to punish you as a borrower because you mismanaged your cash, right? Like you didn't lose your job on purpose along with one fifth of other Americans today that are probably out of work. So they're not going to punish you or go down that retribution sort of path and like ignore all your phone calls and all that. They're not going to do that. But on the other hand, they are going to now institute basically protocols and systems in place which sort of take away the, the personal sort of touch, right? Because they've got to manage a book and managing, maybe managing like a hundred, let's say for a community bank, managing, let's say five or 10, 
bad loans that's manageable that one person can do. But when you've got a thousand loans in default, they've got to go systematic. And you just hope that their systematic approach doesn't, well, I already know this, their systematic approach may not be in your best interest. Um, but there's things that we can do from a legal perspective to help help save that off, or at least help get a better outcome and at least get a seat at the table so that both sides can at least talk about priorities. And so the commercial side to go to flip around, what's commonly done with loan workouts is a negotiation agreement where you are actually negotiating how you're going to negotiate and you agree to how you're going to negotiate. And there's a signed, you know, document that backs that up. And that pre-negotiation, pre-workout arrangement um, is actually very useful. Uh, many people don't know about it or they just like, we'll just sign whatever the bank gives them. But that in itself is enormous leverage for a business owner if they have loans to go through that pre-negotiation pre, pre process. And I know this would, we don't have enough time to cover all this. There's just too much. And we will be wrapping up here shortly. But I'm curious on that yeah. one. Even going into a loan, are there things... So we're talking about like what to do after, you know, after the fire, so to speak. But like going into it, is that something to be keen on and be aware of? Like make sure to implement certain things. Yeah, like that's what we do. Like we're trying to... At this stage in mid-March, we're trying to make people aware of, hey, you've got options. And you know, just like any operation, you need to know your options, right? We can talk about it calmly right now while you may have some cash in the bank, while there's things are still going okay, I guess. You know, we don't want to have this conversation, you know, 45 days from now, and like you've already gotten the default letter. Because when you get a default letter, like and I and I've I've been on the end of this, your heartbeat rises and you just change physically, and then it translates into your mind. And you don't think straight when things like that happen. Like if you've ever gotten a letter from a lawyer, I guarantee you probably for most people, their heartbeat starts rising and they get thrown into the state of shock or panic. And they choose to ignore it, which is what most people do. They may call an attorney, but the problem is they call the wrong type of attorney. Right? You need someone that like lives and breathes and created these documents and has read over these documents and lives through these documents to really give you a good picture of what your options are. So don't be that guy 45 days from now. You know, when you get the letter in the mail, you want to talk about your options before you get the letter in the mail. Good. Well, I mean, I, I can't think of a better place to start, like kind of wrap this up because given the circumstances and maybe we will have you back on in a couple months. Um, you know, I think it's it's the fundamental thing is like, get get your stuff organized, get it straight right now, get the expenses bucketed, understand where you are. And I think an important other summary piece was kind of the delineation between obligatory and non-obligatory expenses and debts and whatever that might mean. You know your what I mean? priorities, right? Like, yep. just know your priorities. Yeah. Awesome advice. Well, Samir, where can people reach out to find you, connect with you? I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who have questions. Yeah. So my email is uh, Samir, S-A-M-I-R, at trophypointinvestment.com. Uh, trophypointinvestment.com. Trophypoint, you know, is a monument at West Point. Yep. Um, and I've got a couple other partners inside Trophy Point. But uh, and then you can just call me as well and I'll uh, I'll give you my phone my phone number um, if that's okay. Totally okay. You just might get a lot of calls. I don't know what's gonna happen here. Nobody's ever done this before. Let's do it. Yeah, I, I because this is such a fluid situation. Yeah. Like just giving out I'll talk to anybody for at least five minutes and set set some standards for how they have to message you. Like say, hey 
I'm Tom and I heard you on In the Trenches. Something like that. So you don't just get bombarded with bizarre messages. And then let's let's yeah. go. Let's give it out. <laughs> well, my phone number is 470-236-2489. 470-236-2489. And when you call me, just say, hey, look, this is my debt, right? Whether it's commercial or residential or business or non-business. This is how much it is. This is my cash situation. This is my biggest fear. And, and if you can, you know, talk to me about what you think is going to happen in the next 45 days for, for your life or business. But we can go from there. We're going to, yeah, I'm going to try to publish this like ASAP, like in the next few days, honestly, which is a, a, a faster turnaround trend than I ever, ever do. But we'll get this out there quick so people have it. If you want me, I can publish that number on the website too, or we can just keep that for the person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But um, listen, if you're listening to this right now and you do have any kind of challenges with that, you know, ping Samir, it cannot hurt you just to, to reach out. And, and I really do. I believe that. So having known Samir for a while now, and you know, he's a West Pointer, so you can trust him and he's good stock. So like reach out if you have any questions or challenges, especially for those business owners who are listening, who are maybe not feeling it just yet, but it, it feels like it might be on the horizon. Um, reach out. Samir, thank you for being on In the Trenches, man. I really appreciate you sharing your advice and your knowledge and wisdom with us. Thanks, Tom. And thanks to you for, you know, sharing all the content that you do. It, it really does help. I mean, I'm a novice in marketing. Uh, my skills are elsewhere, but listening to your stuff is, is great. It's helping me like organize my business on the marketing front. That's uh, awesome to hear. That's what I love to hear. Really helping people out like in a, a useful way, right? Just like you were saying, like if you can help anybody out, same with me with the podcast. I make no money off it, but uh, I know there are people who need it. And this is a particularly useful one given the circumstances. So we'll get it out. If you guys like this podcast, Leave a rating review on iTunes. Go to tommorkis.com slash iTunes. You can check out the show notes at tommorkis.com slash podcast. Samir, thank you for being on In the Trenches, man. Thank you so much. Have a good one. And that wraps up another broadcast of In the Trenches. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating review. Just go to tommorkis.com slash iTunes, and that'll take you to iTunes where you can leave a five-star rating review. And that really helps spread the word about this podcast. And finally, if you need help growing your online business or generating new traffic leads and sales at a profit, reach out to me at tom at tommorcus.com or head over to the website tommorcus.com and sign up for the free newsletter. That's it for today. Stay frosty.